let's get this train wreck rolling. Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a sensationalist imprint of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Joining me here in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is Devil May Care counter-revolutionary Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is self-described amateur quilt enthusiast Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from the edge of Mount Thor in Nunavut, Canada, Bill Spruill. All right, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's now time for the embarrassing part of the podcast for uh, me personally, Lies, Damned Lies, and Linguistics with the Unmutual Prey Jones. You guys know how this works, but uh, let me tell you again. I'll read you three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is fiction, though the fictitious one may be based on something that's true. Each of you will then have to talk yourself into a choice of which one is the false item. And when you're done, I'll maybe tell you a little bit more about each one and reveal which one is the lie. And we've been keeping score from podcasts to podcast to see who's the most gullible. So far, after four episodes, the scores are Bill, three out of four, Keith, two out of four, and David, one out of four. <sighs> now, since David is doing significantly worse than chance, uh, we can <laughs> let him choose whether he would like to go first or last. Going last means you can hear everyone else's reasoning, but going first means you can make your choice without being unduly influenced by all those pesky facts. Uh, you can even pick your answer before I read them if you want. All right, listen, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going first. This time because I feel good about this one. Okay. All right, so here are the three items. Number one, Kikamba, an African language, has three distinctive levels of aspiration for stops. Unaspirated, aspirated, and what is called heavily aspirated. Number two, Papiamento, an Iberian Creole of the Caribbean ABC Islands, is one of possibly only two languages in the world that use both stress and tone. Number three, in Guarani, uh, nasalization is very contagious. If a word contains a stressed nasal vowel, then the nasalization spreads in both directions, affecting other vowels and voiced consonants. All right, David. Okie doke. First of all, I have heard of nasalization spreading a lot. I've seen it. I know what blocks it. Uh, and so I'm going to say that the Warani one, that one's true. So I'm, I'm pretty satisfied that that one's true. And if it turns out to be false, something's going to get punched. All right. Yeah, let's see. The second one was, um, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Was that Papiamentu? Yeah. I'm kidding. I was listening to it. I believe it is pronounced Papiamento and not Papiamento. Apparently, there are two dialects, and one is pronounced one way and one is pronounced the other. Well, then I, don't, then I don't know anything about this dialect. So I'm going to say that uh, this one is also true because you said two languages where, where uh, stress and tone plays a part. One of them is going to be Papiamento, and probably the other one is Papiamento. Come on, there's a possibility. And the false one, I'm sure this, has to be that first one. Because that is not Kikamba, that's Korean. Korean has the unaspirated, aspirated, and super aspirated stock. And I am sure of that. And nothing that anybody that follows me says is going to convince me otherwise. There. All right, Bill? Well, part of the problem for me this week is all three of these questions could revolve around what linguists call things, and that means lots of things are believable. Uh, looking at number one, lots of languages that have three stop series, some linguists could turn around and say they're three different levels of aspiration. And so they could call a voice stop like under-aspirated or something like that. Uh, Kikamba does sound like it could be an African language. I'm going to say number one's true. 
Uh, number two, again, how is the linguist defining stress and tone? It could be that any kind of avoidance of vowel reduction in a syllable could be analyzed as stress. I am a little suspicious of this term Iberian Creole, because why isn't it like Spanish Creole or Portuguese Creole? It sounds like somebody's trying to sneak in the ancient Celtiberians or something, and I, I, I don't really believe it would be a Celtiberian Creole. Warani, that one sounds believable because nasalization could actually be sort of at the word level or the stem level and it could spread all over the place. So I'm going to say the false one is number two. All right. And I'm not sure Papimento's Caribbean either, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, Keith. Well, I think, just to be different, I'll say number three is false. Number one, Kikamba uh, appears to have two different levels of aspiration in the name of the language itself, and there's probably a third one missing just as a, a, an accidental <laughs> gap in the data. So I'm going to say that one is, is likely to be that one is likely to be true. Uh, number two is likely to be true because I don't understand what it's claiming. <laughs> and I usually find that that means it's true. And number three... Once again, just looking at the word itself, you can see that the stressed, nasalized final vowel there has not spread to the first two or three syllables, however many this has. And so I think that that name of the language itself proves that nasalization doesn't spread. Okay. Um, well, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm speechless, Keith. Uh, the fact that you're using my pronunciation of the names <laughs> as evidence. <laughs> oh, it's not your pronunciation. I'm looking purely at the orthography, you know. Uh, there I wrote is it no down. tilde it's on there. <laughs> well, that's because I spelled it, it, it the Spanish way. It, it's a stress mark. It's not a tilde. There's no well, I, I wrote it mark. down as he pronounced it, so I'm sure that I've got it right. Got it. Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take these in order. To my shock and amazement, David is correct. The first yes. one is the false one. Oh, oh. Hmm. that's just not right. Yeah, what that David got one right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, as far as I can tell, there is no language that's reported to have three levels of aspiration. I'm not sure what you're talking about with uh, Korean there. Look again at Korean. There's something going on. They, they... Korean only has two. But they... it has that's, that's one of the analyses of Korean. It, there are three consonant series. Yeah. One is unaspirated. One of them's aspirated. And then people argue about what to call number three. It, right. It could tense. be globalized. It could be tense. Right. It could be, I, I forget what the actual term is, but it's like passively ejective or something. Fortis like and Lane. Is the term Fortis and Lenis. So it's the Fortis series. No, no, no. See, the other one's Fortis. There's Fortis, Lenis, and then Super Fortis. I believe that's the Super Fortis one. That's a thing, right? No, there's Fortis and Lenis and Sub Fortis. Oh, oh, okay. I thought it was just like Lenis, Fortis, and Butch. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, the interesting fact that is actually true about Kikumbe is that uh, it is claimed to have four distinctive phonemic levels of vowel length. Four? Yeah. Four? So though, vowel length? Though the another analysis is that there actually only has two, but you can have the same vowel repeated. And so you could have a too short, a long and a short, no, uh, long or too long. long. Yeah. Did somebody put in like the instant nano vowel just to make the representations come out right or something? I, I don't know. <laughs> Like um, those stems are different. That one has a vowel that's too fast to detect. The other one doesn't have. I think Bill was right to be upset that uh, these all involve claims that linguists make because, uh, as he said, <laughs> that sort of takes all the possible limits off, doesn't it? Well, what am I supposed to do with the information about a language? I mean, somebody had to... <laughs> you 
use Why don't you base these things on the grammar I wrote instead of these <laughs> other nonsense things? That there you go. You, use, Send me a copy. Use only claims made by missionaries, and that's it. Missionaries and native speakers, that's all. <laughs> okay, so number two, uh, pap- uh, papiamento. Uh, the reason it's called an Iberian Creole is that it is clear that it is, it is a Creole of some African language and either Spanish or Portuguese. It's not clear which. Oh, so they're... Yeah, so they're, they're sort of hedging their beds. They bought about Basque. Yeah, they threw Basque in there too. <laughs> and the language does have vocabulary from African languages, English, Dutch, and Arawak. Uh, and one theory is that the tone came from the African ancestor and the stress came from the Portuguese or Spanish ancestor. In Guarani, number three, nasalization is very contagious and it can spread even across morphine boundaries and affect affixes, postpositions, and compounds. And David, you said you knew uh, where when it, what stops it. Um, my guess is going to be uh, some sort of laryngeal, so maybe uh, an H or a glottal stop. <laughs> uh, stressed oral vowel, actually. Wait, wait, wait! No, 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 no! So no, a stressed vowel that's minus nasal. Hold on! No, I meant spread within the word where there is a stressed yeah. nasal vowel. How right, and if there's if there's another vowel that's also stressed, that's an oral vowel that stops the spread. How, how do you have two vowels that are stressed in the same word? You mean uh, secondary? Secondary stress, I assume. Oh, long okay. words. Well, in that case, it's not going to travel very far, then, is it? Well, but if the other vowel is also nasalized, ah, then it just goes. Okay. But then, but then you can get in fun arguments if, if the other one's nasalized about which one's spreading to the unstressed syllables. Mm, well, maybe it's, it spreads in both directions and you get complicated yeah. interference patterns. If there are two stressed syllables and some unstressed syllables, the whole word ends up nasalized. No, stress nasal vowel. There are two stressed nasalized syllables. The whole word ends up nasalized, but you can point at, for example, a prefix and say, is this being nasalized by the nasal vowel next to it, or is it long-distance nasalization from the nasalized vowel further on in the word? See, and then you can you can have dueling papers about that. It sounds fine. <laughs> okay, and then maybe a vowel in between two nasal vowels that are both have some kind of stress contribute to form a super nasalized vowel in between them that's somehow more nasal than the nasal vowels themselves. Maybe it becomes nasal aggressive. Ooh, I like that. So they can have three levels of nasalization. <laughs> it, it, if it doesn't, you just say it does, but there's a lower rank constraint called no super nasal or whatever you say with little asterisk. In it. Very highly ranked in most languages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Trey. That was Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. And now we've got some language news for you. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by... People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Do your part to help the poor. Employ a functionalist today. Welcome back, and now for some language news. As I long suspected, it turns out I was right and Chomsky was wrong. Uh, words come down from what I assume to be a linguistics journal, Ars Technica, that word order constraints appear not to be innate, but in fact appear to be byproducts of run-of-the-mill language evolution. Uh, generativists, of course, have a long history of being able to marginalize any study or set of data that appears to contradict what they hold dear. Uh, so what about this news? Just another fly on the windshield? They just run the windshield wipers on this one? Uh, what do you think, Bill? 
Well, I think it'll probably get ignored after a while, but there were a couple of things about the article that impressed me, and the same thing goes for the discussion that it provoked on language log. Uh, for one thing, the article and the language log discussion managed to discuss the entire topic without ever having to mention Sapir or linguistic drift, hmm. which Sapir discussed in terms that are kind of analogous to that, you know, the current state constrains the resulting state approach. So the article focused on state changes instead of the actual changes, uh, instead of the actual states. But there is kind of an intriguing connection in that where you can get to is obviously limited by where you start out. I wasn't that surprised that Language Log didn't mention Sapir because they hate steampunk. <laughs> and so you never get discussions of Superior linguistics. It, they never even mention Pongrobnit's phonematic discrimination engine. I mean, you wouldn't even know it existed from language log. But still, I, I thought it was kind of odd, you know, that they were so so clearly dancing around it, you know, as if history had not even happened. The other thing about the article was they have this played credibility tree chart that just rots. If you ever find yourself facing an over over-enrolled uh, linguistics section, like you're supposed to teach a freshman linguistics course, and there are like 50 people in it, which is supposedly the cap, but you, you never actually want that, right? <laughs> you just slip that chart into the overview when you're talking about historical linguistics, and you'll be down to 30 in no time. That thing is glorious. <laughs> I, it is absolutely <laughs> glorious. It's gigantic and color-coded and has symbols all over it. I can't help but saying, look, Looking at the thing, Clade would be a great name for a field linguist in an action novel. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I was impressed by several several portions of that article. Uh, so, I don't know why it's such big news that Chomsky's wrong. He's been wrong about a lot of things actually for more than 40 years. In the Sound Pattern of English, he said that uh, conventional orthography of English is a near-optimal system for the lexical representation of English words. What could be more untrue? <laughs> anyway. It's near-optimal. I've learned it. <laughs> but I, I agree that with what, what Bill was saying about, you know, basically there's a, the larger problem is there's a lack of unification of the diachronic and synchronic perspectives in the study of evolution of languages and, and the familial aspects of language. And uh, something like this comes up, too, in, when you talk about language games, which is a, a hobby of mine. And, you know, crazy permutations like Verlan and French uh, don't happen in natural languages, not because we can't learn them, which would then imply that there are elements of universal grammar that prohibit them, which some people have argued, but we can't learn them because there's no plausible or sufficiently likely evolutionary path to get to such an endpoint. And is they is the isle iway iway onte ixpe ixpe atenle too much. <laughs> How do you do it, man? So I think, even though it kind of hurts me to say it, I think what we really need is a conlangy forbidden experiment where somebody devises a language that violates every possible universal t uh, universal tendencies, and then try to teach it to, to a bunch of kids and force them to become linguists. <laughs> and uh, if we start soon, by the time they all have their PhDs, either Chomsky will be dead and we can declare victory, or Chomsky will still be alive, which means we've defeated more mortality and we can all celebrate. Hey, that's not too bad. Of course, but but even if we if we even if we ran that experiment, I find um, probably the most compelling argument that any generative any generative makes, and they make this effectively, runs something like this, which basically these data run counter to the claims of UG, therefore they're outside UG, and so we don't need to discuss them. Right? It's a pretty compelling argument. <laughs> it's a performance. It's, it's a pretty effective argument, anyway. <laughs> it's a theoretical performance. I mean, I <laughs> 
I, I would point out the article does uh, try to do equal time criticizing their characterization of Greenbergian correlations, too. One of the positions it argues against is the generative position. The other one, though, is they class it as a Greenbergian position. Greenberg actually just talked about the correlations. It's, it's people later that were saying, well, maybe we get this correlation because of constraints on abstract cognitive representations or that kind of thing. But it, it isn't just criticizing Chomsky's position. So you're saying that this is sort of equal opportunity bashing of all linguists by biologists. Is that what you're... <laughs> this is why I brought up Sapir. It, it doesn't necessarily contradict the trends that Sapir was talking about, which was that if you grew up speaking a particular language, it's got pressure points already existing in it, which will cause you to have a more constrained path of change for speakers of the language. And that languages that are related to that one, it inherited most of the same pressure points, so they will move in similar directions. So it's a lineage effect, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't like the uh, supposition that basically you have to be one or the other. Either you're a Chomskyan generativist, or you're you know, a Greenbergian. I, I would like to think myself as somewhere in the middle, perhaps a, a Chombergian. Again, an actual Greenbergian position, I think, is their correlation. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily say, well, why are there correlations? It's just, this is interesting. There are correlations. The article does say those, correla- those correlations are actually weak, however, and the lineage effect is stronger than the correlations you would measure mm-hmm. otherwise. So then, does this completely defeat headedness as an interesting thing, as something that we should consider in length, once and for all? Hmm. I'm not sure because headedness started out as not terribly interesting to start with for me. So. <laughs> uh, fair enough. All right. Well, listen, um, I know that there's been some heated discussion over at Language Log about this article. So let me try to summarize the whole matter neatly and fairly. This study proves conclusively, once and for all, that everything Chomsky ever said or believed about language was completely and totally false, and he and all of his adherents should be jail. Uh, And with that, (laughs) let's go ahead and move on to our next article. You know, uh, I haven't really read this article, but I'm pretty sure I know everything about it. Languologist Quentin Atkinson wrote a paper on a study he did which shows that phoneme sizes shrink the further away from Africa they get. How about that? In other words, as we all migrated out of the Garden of Eden in what's now the Central African Republic, I assume, we drop phonemes along the way. Uh, I assume this is on account of some sort of phoneme tax imposed on weary travelers as they migrated from place to place. Uh, My question is, what became of those phonies? And is there a possibility that we might get them back? Who knows? English might have had an entire pharyngeal series that's rusting away in a customs office in Damascus. Trey? Well, I actually have a different theory, and I think it's it's that this just goes to prove that phonemes have mass, Mm. which means they're heavy. And so people just discarded them on their long treks. Uh, out of Africa and around the world. Discarded, you mean it was it wasn't worth the energy required to carry. carry they them. were baggage. Yep. Do we really need this? You know, it's just like, do we really need this phoneme? Nah, just put it down here. We got to move. I, I, I take issue with the entire premise of the paper. I used my highly complex visual cortex to process billions of bits of photonic information, which means, you know, I stared at the graph for a while. And I've come to the conclusion that the correlation looks pretty weak. There's a pattern. There's a subtle slope in a big, messy mass of data vomit. And it's the same kind of pattern you'd see in a Jackson Pollock painting if he was having middle ear trouble when he was throwing paint. So there's a tilt to it, but there seems like there's more noise than signal there. 
Well, you know, Trey, that's fascinating because I didn't, I didn't look at those things at all. It looked totally like noise. But I looked at the walls maps, the corresponding maps uh, to the tone system complexity and the consonant inventory complexity on which this study was based. And I just, you know, I just uh, did some uh, visual normalization and realized that they missed the actual interesting generalizations. The fact is that the complex tone systems are all near the equator. And <laughs> the small consonant inventories are also near the equator. It's, it just jumps out at you. Take a look. And it's statistically significant. Uh, okay, because, and so what's the mechanism there? Do, well, so that suggests that language change is, you know, we've always known that language change was driven by some sort of economy, which is usually translated laziness, but now I think we can see why. It's temperature-induced laziness, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, consonant systems are driven by temperature-induced laziness, but economy of tone systems is driven by the need to keep the body warm in cold climates, and so... But where are some system. of those equatorial areas high altitude? Um, no, I don't believe. I don't know. I can't tell on this map. Don't mess up a good theory with messy facts. Well, it, Go it, ahead. No, but the, it, it makes inherent sense if you think about it. Because uh, I mean, what's what's easier having to to distinguish and to produce, you know, something like da versus da versus ta versus ha versus da, or just saying something like da 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 da. I mean, yeah. If you can do it, why do you need all those phonemes? You got you got you can just a- a- explode the number of tones and get the same number of syllables. Sounds like a good deal to me. I would point out kind of as a a different take on this. You keep talking about losing phonemes. What they actually were trying to argue was that the phoneme inventories got smaller. That means your phonemes are getting bigger. (laughs) All right, because there's only a certain amount of space in your mouth. And uh, you're absorbing each other. When you're looking at vowel phonemes, for example, you cut down on the number of distinctions. Each of the vowels basically takes up more room. I mean, that you look at plastic, for example, with its three-vowel system, it doesn't really matter. Matter if you say e or e or a, it's all the same vowel phonemically. When you're moving away from Africa or this equatorial region, what you're seeing is the phonemes getting bigger. All right. I so like one one possibility is there's a certain amount of latent phonemic energy in the landscape. And in the original sort of home area for our species, we used it up. <laughs> and so we end up with tiny little impoverished phonemes, and that means we end up with a lot of them, okay? Um, as the species spreads outwards into larger, you know, areas that were not occupied by language users earlier. And I would point out this may indicate that Neanderthals did not use language because apparently they didn't use up the, the phonotronic energy. that uh, the vowels start growing and then they compete with each other, right? They're like large, vicious vowels and they kill off all the small ones and you end up with small phonemic inventories with huge vowels. I don't like this anthropomorphization of of the vowels and and other phonemes. I think I I prefer the uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup theory, which is that, you know, they were just, they're carrying the phonemes along. If you're going to trek 20,000 miles carrying a bag of phonemes, eventually you're going to smash a couple together. You know, oh no, you got your high front vowel vowel in my mid front vowel. You got your mid front vowel in my high front vowel. Mm. They taste great together. 
maybe well, well, maybe combining the uh, phonemic energy theory and the uh, long trekking theory. Uh, actually, what happened was that people were forced to eat their phonemes. It's <laughs> either <laughs> that or their children. <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm on a you know I think we should develop a measuring device because if I'm right, the Caucasus Mountains should be devoid of phonotronic energy. Uh, <laughs> right, that it, it's like a natural phonotronic flat zone. Okay, I, I have to ask a quick question though, uh, since uh, th- we've kind of ignored this portion of the article. So uh, even even saying that this characterization is right, which I think is dubious, since they were using Wall's data, and let's be honest, the plus or minus on those phoneme inventories is probably around forty, as far as accuracy goes. But um, anyway, if this is true, do you think this actually supports the theory that all human life came out of Africa and spread out across the world? Because I thought that was the claim. Well, that's supported by an awful lot of things. No, it's not. Give me. A I break. mean, actual actual science instead of what <laughs> we talked about. <laughs> I think it's irrelevant whether it supports that theory or not. This is this isn't interesting data for that question. Okay. See, myself, I grew up with a little thing called Street Fighter Two, and if you look at the map when you're selecting your character, Japan is right in the middle. So I just assumed that that was where humans came from. That's where street fighters came from. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, there there are sections of the internet that would place it in Atlantis, I think. So, you know, I think the reason they can't find Atlantis is it's actually in the middle of Africa. Uh, yeah, that would make sense. That's frankly. usually where I find my car keys. Or Scranton, one or the other. All right, that's it for language news. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we've got more from the irrepressible lady fan Todd. Language made difficult is brought to you by Linguists for a Better Tomorrow a non-profit company focused on helping linguistics graduates to avoid becoming English teachers. Donate now to give a graduate student hope. All right, we're back with the Lady Fan Todd. Bill, catch us up to speed. This week I grabbed what I thought was the most interesting question out of a fairly full mailbag, but I have to warn you, it's to do with the German mathematician and philosopher Frege. So just for the record, if Lady F is up to anything in the German bits that the FCC nails us for, don't blame me. I'm a linguist. I don't actually speak that stuff. You know, you could have just run it by Daniela. I cannot get Daniela to read anything else from Lady Fantod. I gave her something a few years back, one of those essays Lady Fantod wrote, and Daniela says she'll never be able to think about Delbrook, laryngeals, or antelope ever again. And I'm afraid to ask what that means. The question that was sent in was... Please going to read it. Go ahead, Trey. Okay. Uh, the question is, what kind of jargon conventions are most appropriate for a summer conference? I thought to use Greek letters, but everyone else has been doing that. Would resuscitating Phrygian logic symbols seem too stodgy? My dear, what a simply ravishing notion. Dear Gotti's axioms used to be dear rigueur during the London season, and now it's been decades since one saw so much as a A wird verneint und B wird bejaht in Hyde Park. How very encouraging it is to think that one of you modern children understands true notational panache when you see it. I shall never forget our golden summer afternoon punting on the cam. Gotti and I had been drifting blissfully along for hours beneath the willows, when suddenly... He flung aside his volume of Keats, insisting that he could wait no longer. He 
existentially quantified my new hat. Welcome back, folks. Uh, next week, we will have another response from Lady Fantod. But just for the record, would whoever is signing themselves Mr. Limbaugh, please stop stuffing the mailbag with questions about Lady Fantod's prescriptions. That's not linguistics. And no, you can't. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Bill. Okay, now for a real treat. Uh, as some of you may have heard, I created the Dothraki language for HBO's hit show, uh, Game of Thrones. You know, I, I like to be a little circumspect about it, but Trey and the guys have been bugging me nonstop and have all but forced me to let them interview me. So, uh, you know, with pressure from fans like that, what can I do but relent? Uh, so against my better judgment, here I am. You can ask me whatever you like, but I beg you, go a little easy on me. I'm still new to the whole fame thing. Well, uh, okay, creating a language is, uh, is a massive undertaking. How, how did you manage to pull it off in so little time and uh, with such excellent results? That's a great question, Keith. Really, I had to manage my time very wisely, and I had, you know, a great group of supporters around me. And, you know, I think it came off really well. Are you surprised by how enormously popular the Dothraki language is? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's a great question. That's one I get a lot. Uh, I, You know, I guess I'm not really surprised since there's a huge fan community, but I guess they're just uh, really responding to uh, all, all the work I put in. I think that's it. Thanks for the question, Bill. David, we already knew you were brilliant. Now we see that, in addition, you are one of the most important artists of the 21st century, if not the most important. What can we do? This is ridiculous. Don't you think you're just contributing to the delinquency of minor conlangers? All your fame and fortune is just getting their hopes up. They'll all think their little conlangs are going to be famous someday, but they won't. There's a worldwide demand for, what, maybe three or four professional conlangers? I don't think I was uh, prepared for a question like that, but, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, any any kind of a, a thing like this, you know, it's generally good for other, other conlangers, right? David, based on the lexical sample that I have seen, you appear to know nothing about life on the steppes. Have you ever been to Mongolia? Have you ever even seen a horse? I was once on a horse when I was 10 for a few minutes, um, but... Uh, Give us even one horse recipe, David. Oh, oh, here, here's something I want to know, too. I noticed Martin, that's the author, right, this Martin guy, decided yeah. to take a culture that has, like, Mongol and Amaranth physical characteristics and then, surprisingly, for a fantasy volume, cast them as the initially barbaric-seeming menace from the East. That's kind of rare. I mean, you only normally get that from, I don't know, minor figures like Tolkien. Is there anything you're thinking of building into the language? that will emphasize to any extent the degree to which the Dothraki are more civilized than the backstabbing boatloads of oligarchical incest monkeys that they keep coming into encounter with? Uh, wow. Um, well, I, you know, George R. R. Martin did a, a great job with, uh, with everybody in the book, and uh, I, I, can't, I can't speak anything but glowingly about it. You can't, as in you're contractually obligated not to speak any way but glowingly about it, or... Uh, are there any more questions? Yeah, why didn't you invite any of your Specgram friends to any of these Hollywood Game of Thrones parties? Are we too embarrassing uh, to be seen in public with? Uh, and you know what? I, I think that's going to be all the time we have here on... Or were you just afraid they'd realize difficult. they'd hire a lower um, order linguist? To, to tune, in next, tune in next time when we discuss a landmark kind of blog a, post by a linguistics undergrad who uh, just doesn't uh, get ergativity. Uh, you know, thanks three for listening. actual real languages died while you are uh, working thanks on Dothraki. For, thanks and for listening. Puppy. How do you sleep at night? Think of the children.